Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I am blessed today to be joined by Tara Ann Thieke. Tara is a writer, and she is a mother also of several young children. She lives in Pennsylvania, and she is actually right now, uh, how old's your youngest, Tara? Oh, three months. Three months. <laughs> so this is important time that we have right now that's quiet, so we want to take advantage of, of this time, certainly. So thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your patience and inviting me on here to talk with you and everyone else about the good life. Ah, thank you. So, you know, it, the place where I was first introduced to you was on a, uh, a website, Mere Orthodoxy, and you had an article called Cats and 60-Foot Whales, Reflections on Children's Literature. And so I'm uh, an, an educator also, been in public education for 15 years. At the high school level, my wife, uh, was an elementary school teacher for a few years. And you talk about where children's literature is right now. So if you could j just tell us how do we, I mean, what is the state of modern children's books? What is being put out and, you know, What's the purpose behind that? You know, wh wh why are we putting out the types of books that we're putting out right now? Well, I want to start by saying that I'm going to be a little bit negative. <laughs> but while I am going to be negative about how this field is, there's also a lot of bright, bright places and um, optimistic uh forecasts. So don't, don't take my, um, my dire analysis as the only word. Sure. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at it. And one of the, uh, one of the first things we can say is that it's a field which quantity and the ease of publishing has taken over quality. So publishers want to produce and get as many books out there and get people buying as much as possible and that means illustrators and writers are not taking time to produce a high quality of work. You know, it's the same in um, children's animation on TV. You know, if, if you have, you know, several thousand people working on one TV show, that's a huge waste of resources when you can be producing 10 TV shows. And those 10 TV shows are going to be of a much lower quality. But there's also ideological issues in the field. Um, and what we have are a lot of the people who have the time and the resources and who are rewarded by the publishing industry have a very flattened view of what the good life is. Um, and it's really, I would say, to, it's a world devoid of the transcendent. 
Mm. It's a world devoid of a view of the the permanent things, um, as Russell Kirk called them. It's a world that goes for a cheap laugh. And um, uh, you'll see often in the reviews of these books, the words hilarious. You know, everybody finds this book, um, you know, about uh, a pooping dinosaur or a you know, really silly, drugged out looking cat. Um, hilarious. It's so funny. And children at a small age don't really get hilarious in the same way as adults do. They'll often laugh when an adult laughs. And the adult thinks, oh, the kid's laughing organically. But the kid's really just kind of mimicking the adult's laughter. Right. And so these books that either like have jokes that are sort of above what a kid's actually understanding. These books are written for adults. And then there's books that have a really low level of humor where the adult's also laughing. And the kid, again, goes along with the adult and laughs. Um, but if you if you talk about a book in a serious tone, the kid will also respond with seriousness. They're completely mirroring grown-ups. And if you were to read one of these books in a serious tone, the, the child might respond you know, in a very different way. So the fact that these books are being marketed as hilarious says more about what the adults want mm. than what the children wants. Um, and children do, they do laugh and they do want to have fun with literature. And um, I'm a huge believer in nonsense and silliness in books, but it's about to what end. And a lot of these, the books we're seeing in these, uh, walk into a Barnes and Noble um, and look at what their bestsellers are. There's a tone of disdain for the body, a disdain for serious things. Um, it's not irreverence for the sake of irreverence and having fun, but it's a sake of irreverence for demolishing the idea that there's anything more than laughter, anything more that's worth aspiring to any idea of the good, the true or the beautiful. Um, and I, it, for anyone, I say this in my article, but for anyone who thinks that's not going on, I really challenge them to walk into a classroom at um, a, like a bare bones daycare, like let's say in a, a place I used to work in Southeast DC, and then go into a you know high quality Waldorf school. And the books are going to be absolutely different, completely different. Um, and people aren't picking up on this. What's being produced for the masses is not what the people who own publishing houses are going to give to their own children. Right. So, and, and you, so, or the Waldorf School; those are the the higher end, thirty to forty thousand dollar a year type schools per per child. Yes, like a, a wall. I mean, I've I worked at a Montessori school where I believe the um this and this was you know over a decade ago, but the the average tuition was about 25000 per child. And you would never see, never see anything that's on the shelves of um, Barnes & Noble. I mean, you'd see some classics that Barnes & Noble will still carry, like an, an Eric Carl book is very good for color sensitivity and right. slow pacing. But the mass of stuff is going to be totally different. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the basic economic argument is... You know the the classic, uh, you know, modern conservative would, would would say, well, yeah, but but that's just what the masses want. 
So you give them what they, you know, that the publishers only make what the people want to buy. And, you know, so how would, how would you respond to, you know, to that question? But because that's, you know, in circles that would be potentially more sensitive to wanting their kids to, to, to choose wise literature, that argument will inevitably come up. So how, how would you respond to that? I think, you know, that it, it's an interesting question, but I think let's take a similar example with um, food or food and architecture. I think we will see similar parallels to this, a comfortable relationship with that food. And then if you take them into a sort of, um, there was, I think there was a famous David Frum article on this years ago, but if you take them then to a fancy butcher and show them the different chops of meat, they're going to be overwhelmed. It's a new language. But if you get used to that experience, right. you have a, you, you, you learn a little bit of the, get some comfort there, of course you're going to want the high quality food. And it's the same with architecture. You might like, you know, you might have fond associate, associative memories with, um, you know, a kind of rundown high school or, you know, um, a building that's in need of a lot of repair because it's yours. But at the same time, when you go into a beautiful cathedral, you re- you your heart responds to beauty. And if we right. constantly yes. wall off, um, you know, beautiful experiences from people, then they'll give their good feelings to something that's lesser. And those good feelings are important and wonderful. And it's okay to have positive associations with reading a lower quality book because that was the book you read with your mom and dad. Well, of course, that's good that that's good you have that bond right. there. But at the end of the day, we still want to ask people to reach for higher things. We want to give them the opportunity to choose and they're not having the opportunity to choose those books. Right. And, and th- there is a an, an element which, you know, as parents we don't give our kids the super sugary cereal every day that they may want. It may be what the majority of them want, but what they need, you know, and what is much better for them is homemade bread and scrambled eggs and, you know, or, you know, something that you actually make yourself that does take more time, but is good. So, you know, th- there are plenty of places where we could go with this, but t- to back up a little bit, uh, this is not. The, and by this, I'm referring to 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 the, the lower quality of of literature in general available to to children. What what are the things that are the best sellers? This is not an accident, though. It's not merely just responding to what the people want. I mean, there, there is a, there, there's a broader goal in mind by some. And, and at the risk of sounding conspiratorial, it's not conspiratorial to acknowledge that people with power like would rather have uh, those under them have a slave mindset than have a true... Uh, virtuous 
mindset. And they don't they don't want people who are virtuous and who think for themselves. So what is the broader goal behind this push in, you know, lowering the standards for literature? And I mean, you, you could also say to refer to another one of your articles, just the general segregation of age groups. What's what, what's the deeper purpose behind what's going on with that? You know, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and it's one of those things you feel funny talking about when people aren't noticing, but it seems that the good news is that it does seem like more and more people are getting so much social engineering stuck in their throat that they're like, Oh, this is happening. Um, you know, I don't really know. I don't know enough specifics. I'm not, uh, you have to be comfortable (laughs) You have to be comfortable saying, I don't know about certain things. And there's a lot I don't know. But what seems absolutely obvious is that the there's a mindset amongst the uh, people responsible for bringing things to the public, which is incredibly anti-family, absolutely antagonistic to small, local, independent, self-sufficient groups which don't depend on them and which have a source of value other than the state. <laughs> you know, this is something that uh, as, a, as a teenager, right. I could never have imagined myself saying, but after, you know, decades living and working in, um, in this environment, I can say that's just absolutely the frame of mind is that the family is a competing source of loyalty to the corporation, to the state, to whatever. Thrift, people, a father handing down skills to his son is a threat because now that that person has skills that they are not going to go out for. And you don't have to even, right? I mean, you don't have to, though I do think there is a deliberate, people do talk about this at that level, but you don't even have to posit a conspiracy for this because it would just be the natural interest of the corporations to diminish that. Anytime you have an opportunity to right. say, hey, you know what? That doesn't work for us, but this does. They're going to go for it. So, I mean, I do think that there is deliberate planning and discussion of this, particularly as um, so much of our society has become bent since World War II to creating peer culture and keeping kids isolated from a vertical balancing, but instead keeping them together. So they're vulnerable to media messaging. Um, But even without that, it's just a natural tendency of corporatism and statism to sort of their total ideologies and they're going to attack and consume anything which competes with them for loyalty. Right. So, you know, as, as humans, we like to consume things that are easily digestible. And the, you know, the, st- the corporate state, you know, the, the combination of, you know, powerful corporations with the state, they can consume people who are addicted to, you know, junk literature and, who stay on their phones 22 hours a day 
and, and, th- and who have who don't have skills other than, you know, working in an office, doing certain, you know, who, who have no skills outside, I'll say even just doing one specific thing, they are consumable. Whereas someone who is morally upright, who wants to, to have a true family, a household life where the children are a part of life and they do things together. I mean, I'll just say the family, when it is the way that the family is operated for thousands of years, it is not digestible by the state. They cannot gain the control that they would like there. So, so you have all these different things that, that are being put out to, you know, to, to, to young adults. So I'm you know, shifting a little bit to uh, another article that you wrote uh, for the American Mind called The Last Days of Women. Uh, that was a very, you know, on one hand, it was a disturbing article, not disturbing that that you wrote it but 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 disturbing just in the the things that you identify about what society does to i mean starting with our girls and this is a very sensitive topic for me because i'm i'm a father of of three daughters and you know so i I, you know and, and they're young you know they're age 10 and below. So I want to protect them. And, and so, I mean, some of the things that you, you talk about are very concerning. It's not that you're the only person that said these things, but it, but it, it's just a, a long explanation of what exactly culture is doing to our girls. So c- could you talk about that? a little bit, but, you know, we've talked about kids when they're younger and with literature and then age segregation. So, so now, you know, in the, in, when you talk about the last days of women, what is going on with our daughters? I am also a parent of uh, three young girls right now, and I don't envy either of us. And I, I really feel for the people who, um, <laughs> whose daughters are hitting adolescence this has always been hard. Um, maybe the good news is that because we were a decade into the social media revolution, we might be starting to see what's going on and has been going on for a long time in correcting. Um, young, young girls right now are subjected to an incredible amount of media manipulation and they are losing right. stable identity formation. There's a, a lovely book I recommend to mm. people, though it's um, it is incredibly expensive. Um, again, the good books are expensive. Um, it's by it's by a, a Dr. Yes. Leah Greenfeld, um, called Mind, Modernity, and Madness, and it talks about how for centuries now we've created a world in which moving from childhood to adulthood, that process has fallen apart. And teenage girls, and, and teenage boys too, but teenage girls in particularly, 
are different different risk factors for each each sex but um teenage girls in particularly are part of a group and so when they get into peer culture when they lose mom grandma aunts you know when they don't have markers to move from childhood to adulthood they are completely at the mercy of pop culture and everybody's seen this to some extent you know we we've all felt that pressure um, in the 1990s, you know, the, the women's magazines, the teen girl magazines, specifically the ones for, you know, 10, 11, 12, were full of manipulation. And the, the editors in chief were not running these things for the benefit of kids. They were running them for the benefit of a worldview. <laughs> and they were, they were proselytizers right. for young, vulnerable girls and parents just sort of, you know, thought, oh, this is fine for kids. But with each magazine they were buying their children, they were buying them a worldview. It was a religious tract. And these these girls were reading these things and internalizing all kinds of ideas. And the same thing is happening today with Teen Vogue and its messaging for kids and uh, <laughs> websites. I'm not sure if it's still um, very popular. I think TikTok has replaced a lot. But the website Everyday Feminism and um, Tumblr would just push teenage girls to new extremes. And there was no adult in the room to balance this. And I I think corporate Mm. business, media industry, they loved this. They could just totally decimate the framework that would help a, a young woman grow up and raise a family. And, you know, we were watching fertility just absolutely crash and i if we think it's bad now i don't want to see what it's like in 10 years because of what tiktok and these sites have done to the women who are going to be reaching their 20s they've we've been absolutely right propagandized into thinking that a family and a career and are bad and that children are bad for the environment so, so they're actually good. They're going to yes. that peer culture is going to reward them for not having kids. Right. So we are in a uh, a post capitalist sense. We are repeating the same thing that China was was yeah. doing mandatorily. It's ama- we're doing it voluntarily. It's it's amazing. Right. And China. <laughs> and I don't know which is worse. I mean, it's terrible when the government forces it, but in some ways it's worse when people just voluntarily, you know, do it to themselves. You know, it's either, you know, being shot by your opponent or, you know, just your opponent giving you the knife and say, I'll handle this it's, myself. It's Thank truly, you. it's so sad to see so many, so many people who have just to sterilize and mutilate yourself, you know, that, that is just unbelievable, but that is how successful the, the media has become at warping and, and severing our connection to the past and to, to, to what was, what got us here. You know, if, if your great, great grandmother had the same attitude, you would not be here. And I think there's a substantial amount of people who would say, you know what, that would be for the best because humans are a, a burden on the world and that is such such an unbelievable thing to think about your own life it, it is and and we are denying in this 
the, the image of God that has been given to us, you know, much less denying Logos itself, you know, that, that, that there is meaning behind our being. And you know that that we oh, that we are given the privilege of having union with that meaning. So many will hear this, and and, and will especially that you know those who who already agree that those who've heard everything we've said, and they think absolutely. And so the answer is to leave the internet, leave everything leave my job by a no electricity readout in the woods and raise the kids there now that's an extreme and i know most people wouldn't actually say that but but for some that is the dream of just totally isolating yourself and your household and i can i understand the draw of that i i, I do get it you know, when, when when someone usually it follows that someone reads, you know, an Alan Carlson book, and then maybe they they, they they look at your Twitter account, and and you have some really good good things to say on there. Read some articles. They read Wendell Berry, <laughs> and they say, "All right, I'm there. I'm I, I, I'm in. Let's let's go." And you know, so so we live in Huntsville, Alabama, or. I, I live in Athens, which is a city, small uh, city outside of Huntsville. But, you know, it's, it's a very large, uh, co very cosmopolitan city for, the, for our state, at least, in, in Alabama. There's a lot of engineering jobs. And, you know, so, so, so people who move into the Huntsville area don't have, you know, the, 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 they're all working at regular, you know, strong engineering jobs. And, and they're realistic that they know, you know, we didn't move here so we could go live in, you know, by ourselves. So all that to say, you know, where do, well, where does one start? J j just take, for example, technology and, and our children. You know, we, they have to learn at some point to wisely use it. So, so, so. Where does one start in that, though? How would you that that gives you a lot of jumping off points at which that you could you could take this? But how would well, you answer first, that? First, I completely agree with you, with your own own take on this. That you know it would be wonderful in a lot of ways to to read your Wendell Berry and go start a farm somewhere in the north of Canada. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what we're what we're called for, um, or what we're called to. It's right. the unpleasantness of being at the uh, the Council of Elrond <laughs> and Lord of the Rings analogies are too easy, but these are the times we were born into. Um, and I think that's right. hopeful and a little bit of an adventure. I'm not saying, you know, don't discern, don't be prudent, just will your way through this and put your kids into every situation and hope for the best. We have... Exactly. Like exactly. public school. <laughs> we, we do have to be present. We do have to be making decisions. We do have to be accepting um, that there's risk, but also trying to to read that risk and saying, well, you know, maybe not this activity, maybe not this app, maybe not this movie. Sorry. 
um, and approaching this whole thing with the idea that, you know, the angels come to Mary and they say, do not be afraid. And that's sort of where I've really landed through prayer over the past few years is hmm. I, I would love to, to do so many things and for the world to be different, but it's not. And I'm sure that Mary felt the same way, you know, um, and many of the saints wish that the world had been right. different, but this was the world God gave us, the world God put us into. And that is not to say there's not going to be loss and suffering and people turning away and people being really damaged by these philosophies. But I am a believer in um, George McDonald's, you know, reconciliation, that things are hmm. are yes. going to come together in a in a beautiful way maybe not maybe not in a way that you or i will see or our children will see but being guided being guided by god and not trying to create our own utopia is i think key you know utopians and people mm. who go off to build communes fail <laughs> they usually fail in the same ways in very sad ways and on the other extreme, not making any decisions, thinking I can just trust the media uh, to tell me what to do. You can't, you cannot do that. So be hopeful, pray and, and go right. through this. And you're going to have to make more decisions than your parents did. <laughs> but, but that's, that's, right. that's our task. You know, our task is different than our parents was. And that's a very, I mean, for me, that's a very helpful analogy to, to, to think about Mary because you know, she didn't live in this perfect, pristine King David's on the throne and everything is going right with the world time. She lived in a period where, you know, Rome was in power. You had Herod who was a fake king you know, not acknowledged as a king by anyone except himself and, and, you know, the people that he made to acknowledge that. And, you know, it was a, Judah, the, the Jews were not in a healthy state when, when we look at the, their religious, you know, the, the, the people who were the religious leaders of the time. So, you know, they are, in a unique place and for her to be visited at this time i can imagine i mean just putting my i can't put myself in in, in any woman's shoes very easily but but i can just imagine you know mentally thinking um this is not what i <laughs> asked for <laughs> this is this, this is not you know kind of like the, the old three stooges sketch uh, talk about something that's not high quality uh, movies. But anyway, in, in the, the Three Stooges, there used to be a, 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 a sketch where, where that somebody would, would walk in and he would say, gentlemen, and they would all turn around and say, who walked in? So, you know, when, when the angel comes to Mary and she's, you know, hail, most highly favored one. If that's me, I'm, I'm turning around <laughs> saying, who, uh, you know, <laughs> what, you know, it, or, or even Gideon, uh, another one of my favorite stories in the book of Judges, 
when the angel comes to him and says, you know, hello, you know, be strong and you who are strong and courageous. And, and Gideon's there threshing his wheat at night so that the enemy will not see him, uh, but because they're not supposed to do so. And he's thinking, <laughs> is this a joke? Because, because there, there's no way. But, but there's, there's so many wonderful stories like that of people that, that God uses who they weren't planning on being used that way. You know, th we, they, we always want ahead. the moment to be perfect. You know, we see everything come together on TV and that's warped our understanding of how life works. But Mary did not have an Instagram influencer page to go on and say, okay, let's check 15 tips <laughs> for morning sickness. <laughs> you know, like... She didn't have that. She didn't. Right. She had to still get up and do the work, and she couldn't call a cleaning service. Life is not perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's it is in some ways, in a lot right. of ways, but it's not perfect in the worldly sense. If you receive things as a gift and right. know that they'll that right. your labors, an opportunity for drawing closer to holiness, it's a perfect gift. But if you think it's all just going to be given to you and you don't need to pray to God or look to God, you're going to be sorely <laughs> disappointed. Right. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure, as you know, being the mother of, of four, you know, television, uh, you know, it presents uh, giving birth sometimes in, in, in a very um, joyful slash maybe a little bit easy manner uh modern maybe not so much but but you know it's it, it portrays the moment as being perfect and, and 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 everything being great and and it's it's not that way uh it you know of course you are joyful afterwards but uh it it, it it's not something that is the perfect moment. So, you know, so, so, so that, that's helpful, but, but yet, even though it's not the perfect time, that's one of the most precious things that you will ever be a part of in your life. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a gift and embracing, embracing the gift as such. And this, you know, for us, we've been talking about our, our time, the time in which God is, has given us now that's a mindset that that it's it's missing but because so much of even the best conservative thinkers are very pessimistic and 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 almost even some of them nihilistic saying you know we're just there's not really any hope here so it, are you drinking me mary because you're going to die true. tomorrow it's a very popular uh, doomer mindset and I understand that, but if you believe in God, and I, I over, overwhelmingly do, you know, you know that, yes, this is the long defeat. Of course, of course, you know, the crucifixion comes and then there's the resurrection. So, you know, try to, try to, right. don't tell yourself that, of course, the world's going to be perfect. You know, that was 1950s TV post-World War program, like, Everything's wonderful and perfect, and right. when you're 95, you'll die and go straight to heaven. Well, that's just not how most of humanity has lived. Right. You know, those people were incredibly lucky. Um, some of them didn't do such a good job of passing things down to their grandkids, 
and great grandkids because they were so lucky. Right. Um, so we're sort of getting a, a gift and seeing that comfort has its own risks. Yes, it does. And, and, and we're being sharpened by what has come. And so we can, we can complain about it or we can do something beginning with our families, which, which, which takes us back around now to uh, literature, you know, where, where we started initially. So, you know, what, what are, if, if Tara Anthic is given the ideal uh, literature for small children curriculum, what would you say, because you've studied this, you know, you worked in daycare, you, you worked in, in schools, so you, you, you know about what you're, what you're talking about. So what are good books for children? How, well, how would you recommend There's going to be, that? first of all, an enormous difference between what we give, obviously, um, what we read to a two-year-old and what we want a 12-year-old to read. And the, regardless, so right. I'll, I'll try to cover a few of um, everything. One of the first things I'll also say is that a lot of us were raised with good books. And, you know, this, the what we're seeing on the shelves and the erasure of anything pre-1980, you know, that's an, a new thing. But even, even now you can still find books that we grew up with. So my first advice to parents is think about something beautiful you grew up with. You know, Laura Ingalls Wilder, something we all, we all know, Little House on the Prairie is still good. Um, finding books mm -hmm. like, you know, Roald Dahl books. These are books we grew up with that have good stories that we can all, that you can share with your kids. And that's a, a key thing is having something that you remember and giving that to your kid. Sometimes finding something new is, is great, but it can also be something that you can't really relate to with your child. Um, the gift of a fairy tale is right. something that your great grandmother told to you and your grandmother, great grandmother told to her daughter and you're passing that on. That's important. So telling right reading Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland, these might not be perfect stories, but there's a, a benefit in this being a, a, a continuous strain of thought that is being going from parent to yes. child. Um, some of my favorite books for children in terms of illustrations um, come from the golden age of literature golden age of children's literature, which is at the end of the 19th century to the early 20th century. And anyone who is interested in that, um, just go online, type in golden age of children's illustrations, and you will find so many books with uh, recommended illustrators. Um, I particularly like the, the Swedish John Bauer, and um, there's a number, number of illustrators from Sweden and Germany and Finland, who are just wonderful. Um, one of my favorites is Elsa Besko. I recommended a number of her books on uh, on the list in that article. She has a right. very 
beautiful way of making the supernatural come alive, make giving the world a sense of enchantment mm. and wonder. And that is something I encourage every parent to look for in at least some of the books you're giving your child. Make sure there's something which says there is more to right. this world than control. You know, it's that there is a sense of mystery behind things, a sense of a presence in the woods or, you know, fairies or, you know, whatever you want to call them. I don't mean to go in a, in a pagan way, but to have right. a sense that the world is permeated with enchantment no. because wonder is the key step for children coming to God. Absolutely key for children to feel that yes. the world is full of meaning and purpose and a mystery they can't always put into words. And as soon as that wonder goes out and you see the sort of Bill Nye attitude of, I'm going to explain it to you, you know that God is being pushed out because this person's yes. saying we can control everything. We're in control. Don't look for God. Don't feel any wonder. I'm going to tell you how it all works. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the darkest side of the scientific yes. revolution. Yes, there's incredible accomplishments, but so, there's well, also that tendency to reductionism, which is very destructive. Right. W wanting to, to be in control. And, and so for us in our family, the desire for teaching, and, and by teaching, I'll say maybe making wonder contagious is very strong so you know i'm great not just great i i encourage our kids to read plenty of fairy tales and not just fairy tales that are you know the, the normal three little pigs or well, i mean that's not a fairy tale but you know in, in a way it is but but also you know reading greek myths some of those fairy tales uh c.s lewis was brought to tears for the first time re regarding the supernatural when he's reading a Norse fairy tale about Baldur the Beautiful being dead and it just crushed him that this 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 one who was in whom there was so much hope had died and that's when the first awakenings of there's more to this it may not be Baldur the Beautiful, but, you know, that's when within his soul stirred something that eventually led him to Christ. So, you know, all of those things are wonderfully, wonderful gifts to us, you know, if we use them in the right way. It's, I love that you brought up the the C.S. Lewis story um, and the Greek myths, because myths and folklore, again, they have that sense of this echo behind them. Um, and when Balder dies, and for me as a kid, I had a book where, you know, they recount the story of the great god Pan is dead. And that just was haunting to me, just mm. absolutely haunting. And, and growing up in an environment where most people didn't believe in God and it was sort of poo-pooed, um, that haunting experience stayed with me 
and led me into the Inklings. And the Inklings, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams, they wrestled with all of this. They were they were the first people seeing what was going on right. and putting a word to this. And they made, for me, like one of Owen Barfield's books, I, I longed to be Christian. Absolutely longed to be, but I couldn't, I couldn't get over the reductionism I had grown up with. And in Owen Barfield's books, you know, it became right. absolutely possible for me. I was like, oh, I can believe this now. <laughs> this mm. is, he's this supernatural, like I can see God in this. And this is wonderful. It was such a, such a relief. And so wow. I really encourage anyone to, to give your children George MacDonald books, give them Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, read everything they wrote, talk, read their letters, talk about them because they were here, you know, 80, 90 years ago. And they saw yes. this, they've talked about it. They've, t they've said, read those myths, give, give your book, your child, a book of them. And you're going to create that foundation for wonder, which will lead to God. Yes. So how would you, what would you say to a parent who, who's, who's been doing this or who's tried to do this and th their children actually become so hungry and so voracious in their reading that they actually outstrip the parent's ability to keep up with the books B because that, that <laughs> actually does happen sometimes as a good parent, you know, we think I'm going to read everything before my child does so that we can have excellent discussions on every book. And, you know, I, I will admit I, I've had to let go of that deception uh, after a while, but because I can't read everything beforehand. So, so what would you say, you know, once children have, have caught the, the reading bug and that's one that we don't want them to let go of. We, we don't want them to be cured from that. So and how would you say when a parent says, I, I don't want my, my child to, to get a hold of things that they shouldn't though? So how would well, you respond? That is an excellent question. It is not one that I have faced myself yet. So, so now you're making me nervous. <laughs> um, well, what am I going to do when that happens? Um, I think there's going to just be a process of discernment. I would recommend looking, um, looking for groups and tr people you trust online, you know, and finding out what they think of any given book. Don't trust Amazon right. reviews, <laughs> you know, uh, absolutely not. Absolutely find, not. Join Goodreads if you need to, um, maybe find some parents who are friends and create a book club, a resource. They don't have to be people, you know, I mean, most of the people I talk about books with, I've never met in real life. You know, they're just other people who are interested in the same things I'm interested in. Um, you consider, consider a book club that you can form with parents, other parents, and maybe go over things together. But additionally, I would say good dinner table conversation. Ask your kids what they're reading, yes. what they learned from it. And if you start seeing them on a path where they're <laughs> telling you something that you're like, oh, I don't know if I really want you to believe that. Well, now you're, this is great. Now you're engaging the culture, which is destructive at home, at the dinner table. And you can ask them to argue, <laughs> argue for this. 
dialogue about it and yes. go through go through the Socratic dialogues and say, well, why why do you think the author said that? You know, and there might be a bad book that gets in there, but if you know about that and your your child's telling you, oh, well, they said this is okay, you can say, oh, well, why do you think that? Why? What do you think the consequences are of thinking that? And I think that gives a respect to the child, the child's development, which doesn't put you yes. in a sense of, in a, in a really antagonistic position, you know, five or 10 years later, but you can, the child right. can say, oh, you know, my mom and dad, they, I thought about that and I believe that. And we talked about it at dinner and they treated me with respect and guided me through that process. And I no longer believe that. I'm not saying it'll work that way every time, but you're not just slapping of course, you're not saying slap the book out of their hand, but I remember reading several years ago, Peter Kreef said, children are natural <laughs> philosophers Good. and they want to know why they are Socratic from the beginning. Not that they're, they, they have original sin, but, but, but they, they want to know they are interested. So parents have the privilege of either engaging in the Socratic dialogue that's naturally present, which takes time, which takes yes. sacrifice, you know, frankly, but we can either engage with it or we can eliminate it. We can just brush off the questions and sadly they're not going the questions will not go away the questions will go they will direct their questions somewhere else yes and to someone else the world has answers for their questions but as parents we have the advantage of them living with us and if we give them the gift of our time and our love and our concern and our conversation and we we treat them not like peasants who need to be brushed off and put to work but treat them with the respect that is due to them as their god's gift to us we can mold them in in wonderful ways and hopefully directing them towards a virtuous heart, which has been a really important uh, emphasis of mine as, as I've thought and, and, and read over the last several years. I think that's wonderfully said. And I think, I think that is exactly the role that we should be, be striving for. And there is, go like you said, there's going to be some sacrifice developing this relationship and this, this trust and to build this, like you said, this virtuous heart, it's going to require sacrifice at times. And that might mean, you know, not overscheduling. I know that, um, you know, something like child sports is a really, is a safe place where you can make sure your child's developing and moving, but it has a, a heavy schedule, <laughs> really demanding. And yes. it might be prudent sometimes, or at least at a vulnerable period of someone's, of your child's life, you know, they maybe seem to be going off the rails a little bit to make sure you're not overscheduling them to pull back, sacrifice a little bit 
and make sure you're physically there to talk to them and that they can trust you. So if, like you said, the world has its own answers. If your daughter picks up a, a young adult fiction, fiction book, which has the idea that maybe she's actually a boy and she gets this idea and then she comes to you and you say, absolutely not. What garbage are you reading? And slap it out of her hand. And then you're like, okay, let's off to practice. She hasn't engaged that that Socratic dialogue. She hasn't really come to accept that she's a girl and that it's not just possible to become a boy um, just because of her feelings. And instead you say, well, why do you think that? Why is that possible? And you have that space to sit down with her and say, you know what? Let's not go mm-hmm. to practice tonight. Let's not rush out to the store right now. Let's make a sacrifice. I'm going to put down my smartphone and we're going to sit down and talk about what you're reading. And I'm not going to yell at you, but I want to hear why you think that. Then you can answer your child and you can be, like you said, you can be the person who's answering those questions, not the internet. <laughs> right. Yes. And I mean, this is part of the, the gift. I, I refer to that term again. The gift that we have as parents is that if we foster communication with our children, if we look at them as those who are born with sin, yet who are not yet given to the, the, the full-on worldly mindset, those who, I mean, they, they, we can be a part of, of, we're God's instruments in molding them. And if we embrace that, understanding, as we've, we've said, that there is sacrifice, but, but the joy behind it is nothing compared yes. to the sacrifice. It's, to bring it back to Mary again, you know, when Mary was told what she was going to be given, you know, there, what a tremendous sacrifice, but the joy is also incredible. And I, from all my work with children over the years, you know, there's been lots of times where 10,000 things needed to be done at once. And I would think, oh, if I could just have two free minutes, I could clean this up. We could have a perfect art craft. We could have a perfect lunch. It'd be so beautiful. Why does my child or, or this child need this right now? But then, you know, you stop and you think I'm going to put my vision of perfection down and get down on one knee and say, I'm going to be here with you. And always all your anxiety, not always, but most of the time, (laughs) sometimes something really does need to get done. You know, your anxiety melts and you realize this is what is important the human face you know the gift of this of this child that god's given yes. me to be here with and everything that seemed so important to get perfect it it's okay that it's a little bit messy because being here with each other is the, the true gift right and is as parents so so in our tradition the reformed tradition in christianity you know, there's a, a strong emphasis on what, what's commonly called total depravity, which, you know, the, the, the belief that, that every part of our being is tainted with original sin. And so there, there can be among some a thought that 
well, this child is just is given so that I can help to uh, to do to, to to make him a good person, to, to make him a Christian, and you know. But so I'm gonna, but I'm gonna treat this child like, like they're really, I mean, absolutely sinners, or the children are, are are just total sinners. When there's also the element of, of children are. They're given to us to help point us as well as parents back to God. Because they have things to say. And Jesus said, out of the mouth of, of babes and sucklings, you've ordained strength. Quoting Psalm 8 when he was questioned about you know the triumphal entry uh, when, when, when he was going in. And he told multiple times, it, he said, you have to become like little children in order to come to the kingdom. So there's there's a lot that we can learn from the simple childlike faith that our children have. And if we cultivate that, rather than trying to streamline parenting, to, 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 to contrast organic and inorganic metaphors here, uh, if, if we cultivate those those things in our children, they're they're going to be a lot better off. I think that's that's beautiful. It's an interesting um, idea of the total the total depravity. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a toddler, you sometimes you can very much believe <laughs> believe that. But um, absolutely, God, God made them cute for a reason, <laughs> which is to stimulate our yes, hearts yes. into love. And there's a line, yes. I think, I don't know if it's from, I think it's from C.S. Lewis, but that the older he got, the more he loved fairy tales, the more he felt that those stories contained something mm. truly timeless. And children yes. are, the, are there for us to, to shape and to mold and to guide. And that's our responsibility. You know, it's important to do those things. But they I, are also gifts to awaken ourselves if we've grown sleepy and incredibly, uh, yes. what's what's the word, um, complacent with ourselves and our morality and our patience. Yes. Each new child tests you and calls you to new things and also sure. reawakens your, your wonder at how different they are than their siblings or their unique capacities, which are all gifts from God. Yes. And then, you know, if we're faithful as parents in time, Lord willing, he'll give us grandchildren as well. And and then we get to do some of it all over again. And hopefully there's actually less of the of the negative elements, which the parents themselves get to deal with. But 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 you still get to enjoy the wonder. And, and, and to be a part of that with them. So, Tara, this is this has been fantastic. I, I was not sure, you know, in, in where we would eventually land because I know you're very eclectic and and, and you have uh, you're very informed in a lot of ways and in many areas. But but this is this has been really good. I appreciate your taking time to to, to talk today. And is there anything, anything you want to recommend 
last uh, to, to parents out there or grandparents when it comes to, you know, to, to books or just any, anything you want to say before I we, think, we close? You know, this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. It was very, very nice to look and see the, the tree behind you and how beautiful it is and calming for calming way for me to start the day. Um, I think if you're, we, we become what we look at and because, think about that and give your child beautiful things to look at and look at them with them. It's so easy to fall into a habit of fear and then from fear to fall into carelessness. You know, we have to, to go through that golden, Aristotle's golden mean and we want to pair prudence with love. You know, love and responsibility, basically. And that's what we have to marry together. Right. Um, and to do that without fear, we have to place our hope in Christ. It's easy to have fear right now. But I would say to every every parent, as awful as it can seem, we're all clearly awakening to this problem together at the same time and trying to confront it. And that is obviously a sign of God drawing us together to help our children. And so we should take hope in that. Yes. All right. Thank you. That, 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 that is great. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. And thank you all for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day.